I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. With any hospitality venture, you're taking care of people. And there is something about the people that love this industry that enjoy taking care of people and that are the people in the room who are happy when other people are having fun. And I think that that is something to celebrate. And I think that's something that when we think about how does our industry grow and how do we repair and how do we really move on from here? I think that's the piece that we have to get back to and make sure that we're building on that and building on that as it relates to all of the stakeholders in the industry. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. We always talk about leading with value. And Candace and Andrew from Carbonate are a shining example of this. In service to our industry, they've produced a free trend report for the last 15 years. In our conversation, we not only cover what's now and what's next, but we discuss the practical ways to implement these trends in your restaurants. I started AF & Co. 17 years ago. Long story short, I'd worked in New York in restaurants, had a moment of thinking I wanted to be a chef. Learned quickly that, well, actually my teacher, Jacques Pepin, told me that I didn't belong in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and he was right. <laughs> relegated me to the front of the house. And he was definitely right. I don't think I've cooked since culinary school, but I fell in love with the restaurant industry and I'd already have a marketing background. So I thought, how about if I bring these two together? And I got some great opportunities in New York, Rainbow Room, Russian Tea Room, et cetera. And then I got an opportunity to come to California with Kimpton Hotels and Restaurants to head up their restaurant marketing group. And I stayed at Kimpton for 10 years and progressed through hotels, restaurants. We opened 40 properties while I was there. And then I decided at my 10th anniversary to leave and do my own thing. I had worked with a lot of agencies who well, now we compete with, which is funny, but I knew in my heart what I thought was missing. And with restaurants, especially, a lot of it is about, we are the only thing they're spending money on potentially as their marketing. So it was very much about results orientation and making sure that everything that we did had an impact on a butt in a seat, whether it was a new butt or a repeat butt. They just wanted to know that if they were going to invest in us, they were going to get results. So we started that and it went great. We had milestones, very interesting, like producing the food, first food and wine festival for San Francisco. And, and then Candace joined AFCO. Really, we were only maybe three or four years in. And together, we had seen this. Everybody keeps calling us for branding because that's what I did at Kimpton. So Candace had the idea that why don't we start a division that focuses on brand strategy and brand communications? And that took off. So then Candace and I, at our 12th anniversary, 11th anniversary, said, 
why don't we become partners and break off the branding and brand communications component and more national scope PR and bigger picture projects and create another company. And that was how Carbonate was born. And I'll just throw it in and I'll turn it over to Candice. It was born January and then March was the pandemic to just put it into perspective. So we are a pandemic baby. like everybody else. But I'll let Candace tell you a little bit yeah. more about Carbonate so, and then we can just go back and forth from there. Yeah, it was a heck of a time to start a new company. Sounds great. I'll say that. One of the reasons why I think what's challenging about being a restaurateur is that you have to wear so many hats. You have to be HR, you have to be customer service, and you have to cook and you know, all these things that as a restaurateur, you're expected to be good at. And what we found is that a lot of times we were working with clients at the independent level and, and also at the hotel level that were sort of like, I need, I have a sales problem. I need PR, I need marketing. And when we'd step back, we'd say, no, you actually have an identity problem. You know, it's not clear who you are or you're not, you don't have the tools in place to make an interesting connection with people, or you're not telling your story well, or all these sorts of things that are really much more connected to some fundamental strategy pieces. So that's the heart of our business and why we launched it as an independent company was to invest in all the tools and things that you need in order to be able to offer those services at a really high level. And it's funny, we did launch right at the beginning of the pandemic. Andrew and I were together at the Culinary Institute of America in Napa, and we had just done the first presentation or one of the very first presentations of our 2020 trend report. And we were like, oh, this will be over in a couple of weeks. And then here we were. And what was really interesting is we actually doubled in size during the over the course of that in the next three years. And I think that's because if you didn't have a clear sense of who you were going into the pandemic, you had one after because you really had a clear sense of purpose. They're really to get through what our industry has gotten through in the past couple of years and is still going through. You have to have a really strong reason for being and why you matter and why the world is better because your restaurant concept is in it. And so we've been over the past couple of years, a lot of our growth has come from restaurants, hotels and other kinds of brands really looking to answer that question and then figure out how you monetize that. How do you grow? Yeah. I'll just throw in that working with restaurants, because you're a restaurateur, you're a chef, you know, restaurateur, it takes a very interesting breed of person because you're not going to be on email like regular business people. You're not going to be available during meal period. So navigating how best to work with restaurants, I think is our niche on both sides of both companies, because we all come from that world. And we've all worked in that world for long enough to understand it enough. But we also feel that it is our job to educate some of the restaurateurs on on techniques and methods they're not familiar with. They may not want to do it, but they need to understand that in order to play with your big boy pants on, (laughs) you need to consider a robust social media program or whatever it is. And so that's our job to also help educate and bring them into what's currently getting business for them. Well, yeah, because prior to the pandemic, I think we could all agree that branding and marketing was deemed optional within our industry. I mean, I would say to an almost absolute degree when it comes to independent restaurants, that nobody's spending the money, right? And that branding is something we'll work out brand colors and logos and all of that later, once we have the money to actually do it. And we'll hire a PR firm and we'll really begin to focus on marketing when we can afford to blow that money. They're nice to have. They're not need to have. And I think one of the things that really came out of the pandemic was that without brand awareness, without built-in methods of communication so that restaurateurs can speak directly to their customer base, you really were like a ship without a sail. Well, I mean, look, here's what happened. The pandemic, and this happened in other industries before, but 
in all industries, but especially restaurants, this accelerated that customers and guests want to engage with you online first and during their experience. I mean, the biggest change that we're still seeing how people discover restaurants is totally different now than it was before the pandemic. Restaurants had to have that digital footprint, have to go online to meet people because that's where they are. They're not necessarily walking by in the same way. I think the other piece that's really interesting is that there's all this talk about the metaverse and there's some technical components that we're already in it. People are already going from their phone to the bar to, oh, I left my credit card at the bar. I got to send a DM to the social media channel of the restaurant or the bar. So there is already that seamless communication and it's really part of operations. It's not just a marketing Mm -hmm. piece anymore. So yeah. Yeah. And I'll say that, I'll just say, I'll get shameless plug for us, right? (laughs) The smart restaurants have always seen the need for brand clarity, marketing, especially if they're not comfortable doing it because the media landscape has changed so much too that the traditional we got one story in the main paper in our city and that did it those days are sort of gone too because you know how it is everybody moved online so the print publications have sort of dwindled a little bit there's a lot of freelancers out there so again i think there's still those wonderful jewel cases of we opened our doors and we were full but i think times have changed and that's even before the pandemic, I think. But I sense that also one thing that always cracks me up is when they say, well, we have a manager who loves to do social media, or we have a server who's great with, that's all great. But the inconsistency of that manager leaving or that server, you know, not showing up the day you need him or her to promote something is really interesting. So I love the scrappiness of our industry. Don't get me wrong. And we're in it because we're small businesses too. So we love that. So that's why I think we all relate really well. Yeah. One of the things that I think we're we're all kind of slowly but surely tuning into is the need to provide value before asking for anything. Big trend report, (laughs) uh, central theme. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It is. (laughs) But it segues into your trend report, which is something you've been doing for 15 years, and you provide it to people outside of your client base. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to comment on that. Candace and I were literally the hours before the trend report was releasing, we were having this very conversation. Value doesn't always mean that it's cheap or value doesn't mean that it's discounted. It's the perception of the value at any level. So no matter what level you're spending at, you want to know that you feel like you've got the value for the money. Mm -hmm. And then some, right? There was that, they went above and beyond and it felt really good. So the trend report was really interesting. And One of our senior strategists on the Carbonate team, Lee, was really sort of with me. Was she with me from the beginning? Yeah, pretty much. To do the the trend report. She was your third hire. We were literally sitting in our offices and we were talking about getting our clients ready for the new year and what we saw coming down that we could put into their plans. And all of a sudden we had this moment of we were getting called to do interviews on trends because it happened every year. And we had that aha moment of like, we should do a trend report. And who would have thought that it would go 15 years and it would continue to get stronger. And then when we launched Carbonate, we felt that because they're really in that brand strategy, that communications, that it had to be a partnership between the two agencies because 
we're digging in so deep into so many areas. Yeah. And I can't say I think I can No, I mean, I was just going to say, yeah. I think when you think about our industry and you think about kind of the last 15 years, which is how long we've been doing this report, we started doing this report and publishing it the year after the iPhone was released and bookending that with the global pandemic, right? And that is a whole lot of stuff that has happened in those 15 years that really fundamentally changed how people experience restaurants and why. And I think there's a lot of opportunity that's come from how people discover things. But at that same time, there comes a lot of complication with that too. It isn't just about what you're putting in front of people. It's about how you tell them about it. It's how you build the story around it. It's about where it came from and why and why that matters. And how you present it. And it's interesting when you say that, Candace, too, it's social media 15 years ago was, I think, literally just coming, well, it was just coming onto the scene. So you just imagine how just tech alone has changed our world in those 15 years. So every year we went into this year saying like, you know, well, we've been in this pandemic. There's been a lot of other challenges now, staffing shortages, rising costs, the you know, world politics, these other things that have gone on to make the U.S. sort of this very volatile place. And we thought, is this going to be a tough year to come up with trends? But once we were into it, they just started to roll. And, you know, some of them are fluffier and this is the new food of the year and this is it. But then there's some central business driving trends that, so it's a combination of things in the report. What's been fun this year is that there has been a little bit of a return to creativity. I think last year, 2020, for sure, we did two reports, right? Because that was all about survival of the fittest or survival of anyone, not even the fittest. And 2021 was a year where we didn't see creativity. We saw a lot of reactionary things. We saw a lot of survival, a lot of things that happened as a way to maintain, not necessarily maintain status quo, because we obviously, we had a lot of change. We had Black Lives Matter and we had Me Too, and we had recognition of some, that our business model around labor was not sustainable. And so there were those things that happened in 2021. But this year is exciting because we're starting to see a return to creativity. We're starting to see people getting back to doing things, not just because the business necessitates it, but because they're being inspired by it or because we're seeing creativity come through. And that's felt really good to see in a year where everything's felt so serious and so significant. There's something really fun about nostalgic cocktails and getting back to some of these things that just make you smile a little bit more. Yeah, we definitely, as a central theme, we saw this slide of like modern nostalgia, we called it. It's so funny, I'm being the older guy on this whole team, right? Some of these things that were very popular when I was a kid or even in my young adult, it's new now, but it's new in a way that I think the, one of the fun things in the report was the jello shots, the modern day jello shots. And just again, the things to Kansas' point that make you smile, they're delicious. People say, oh, is that comfort food? It's different than comfort food. It's the return to nostalgic ingredients or tableside service or just things that are new to the new generations of people. When you look at the innovation, do you see that we're trending positively? When you look from 2008, 15 years later to today, do you see that the industry itself is trending positively and in a good direction? Or do you feel like we're still in a state of decline? Oh, gosh, I'll take that first and I'll turn it over to Candace. I would say trending positively to Candace's point in the creativity space, I think the pandemic actually fostered that creativity. Survival does crazy things to what you can and can't do, right? What you thought you could never do or what you always wanted to do and didn't have the time for, right? So I think the pop-ups and the delivery aspects and all that, I think outdoor dining now, it's part of the culture of dining, right? 
So many of these restaurants have doubled their capacities now because they get to keep their outdoor spaces. So there was a lot of very positive actions that happened. I think where we're getting just a little hung up, which is the reality of the world, is cities are still coming back. They're not back yet. And Candace and I always have this conversation about every city's different. San Francisco is the last to recover by far the last to recover. New York is back already. And then in the middle of the country, they didn't feel the impact as much as the coast did in terms of people not coming to work and the closed down. So I think to answer your question, at least from my point of view, it's a challenge time. Mm -hmm. And it will mean that there's survival of the fittest that will come out of this. And I still sadly see more closures on the horizon because of the increased costs of doing business without the buy-in to support those costs. So I think next year, this 2023, depending on what happens with the economy and everything, I think we're headed for another challenge year, which just means that creativity and innovation and direct marketing are going to be key. That's my two cents on that one. I'll turn it over to Candice. To, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, to I think... Your question's a big one and it's a good one. Yeah. I think sometimes as marketers in here, we want to put a very happy spin on things, right? We want to find yeah. the good and we want to really find the positives in everything. And a couple of positives, I think, if you will recall at the beginning of the pandemic, it was sort of like, oh, well, our sustainability going to go out the door as we all start eating out of plastic, right? And you know what? We didn't see that. The restaurateurs, despite higher costs and despite all these things, still did care about the sustainability of the industry. That didn't go away. The same thing about we start to look at our industry and the inequality that exists in our industry, you know, did we just abandon that thinking? And no, there's a lot of people that are really creatively trying to find more equitable solutions to restaurant labor. And that's a good thing. And I think there's definitely a shift in terms of how we talk about food and how we define good food. What is award-winning food and who gets to decide that? And there's none of that is sorted out yet, but there's a, definitely a lot more conversation about how we define what we should be celebrating as it relates to what we even call American food, right? I mean, what does that mean for America today? And what does that mean when the rest of the world looks at what American food is as we define it? And those things are all positive. I think there's some really interesting conversations happening and some people that are really, some restaurants and chefs who are getting some attention that they deserve for celebrating their culture or other types of cultures that maybe haven't, uh, and cuisines that haven't gotten that attention. So those are all really good things. We still have business model issues. You can't have an industry that exists on such razor thin margins. It doesn't work. We've been underpaying for restaurant experiences in the U.S., many of them, for a long time. And that's something that needs to be addressed. And I think the sad reality that Andrew said is true is that we are going to see some really good people leaving the industry because either their business model doesn't work in the current environment or the cost model doesn't work or people are tired and that's okay. It's okay to leave the industry. It's okay to not want to be a restaurateur in charge and to want to say, no, I just want to be a GM, not just a GM. I want to be a GM or I want to be a server and I want to be an amazing server. And that's one of the things that I see coming a little bit in the future is less of this, I want to own my own gig and more I want to participate in the industry in different ways. And that's okay. That's great because it's exhausting and it's okay to be tired. I would throw in there to go on my Pollyanna, like happy <laughs> moment for a minute. In situations that we're facing right now, there is opportunity because I think the real estate deals are going to ease up. So I think a lot of people are going to see opportunity to get into the game in this next year or two. We're seeing it in our world. We're getting lots of people calling us saying, we just landed a space. I think they're trying to figure out a way to slow down the process to see if they could 
get the things stabilized a little bit. But I do believe there's opportunity in moments like this or in times like this. And we're seeing people saying like, we're going to sign that yeah, lease or we're going to do this deal. Everything goes on cycles, right? Unless there's some major happening that we don't know about, whatever's going on right now will reverse. And I think it'll never reverse from what it was pre-pandemic. The world is just a completely different place, primarily as it relates to people working in offices and doing all that kind of thing. But I do think the economy will stabilize. And as a result, those people that are getting in will have great opportunities. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well yeah. is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and killing those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. The last thing I want to ask about before we dig directly into the information in the report is how folks should engage with it. I opened my first place at 24 years old, and had I had a copy of this book when I did it, I would have been like, all right, guys, everything needs to be purple. We need to add, we need to add lamb to the menu. We're only doing 80s cocktails moving forward and nothing's going to have alcohol in it. Well, I love well, that. Um, I, I, would love to, I would love to see somebody do a restaurant based purely on our trend. Right. That would be fabulous. Um, you know, like, we do, um, we do the be... marketing for free. Branding for free. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> if you ever want to do the restaurant based on completely on our trend report. What's really interesting because big hotel companies reach out to us to present the trend report for their conceptuals. And we usually have to start with, hey, this is a guide. First of all, look at your concept. Does purple food make sense for your concept? Don't shake it all up. But if there is an opportunity, like a thought starters, right, to say, like, we should maybe think about adding a revival cocktail. Or if that's popular, we should consider doing a reverse happy hour or whatever it is. So every year, I think it should be a guide of many that you look at in terms of focusing your business model on, yeah, this works in my concept. For instance, uh, Nikkei, right? That's a very specific kind of food in your restaurant. I wouldn't suggest that all of a sudden you're introducing Japanese flavors if you're not a Japanese restaurant. It could be the kiss of death, like all of a sudden if an Italian restaurant reads our trend report and says we should introduce something in their trend report that makes no sense for their concept. I do think on the marketing, the design trends, all of those, those are like just good for you to know. Mm -hmm. Design is getting simpler. We have to think about certain things. So I hope that people use it as a guide and they pull from it what they feel works for their concepts. Yeah. Also, it's a qualitative report, right? And so 
there's lots of research out there. And the purpose of ours is really to kind of sniff out things that maybe aren't big enough yet for research. I mean, we did this retrospect at the beginning of the report where we looked at kind of the trends of the year. And it's funny, we sort of do that, not just to say like, hey, we got it right, but also look how early that came on the scene. We started talking about that in 2019. And here we are today. So things take time to build. So we also try to look at not just what's something cool and interesting that's happening, but why is that happening? What is causing this? What is making people interested in this? Is it because there is a different growth of a particular population in the U.S.? Maybe that's going to become something different. So I think we always say, look at it with an open mind and let it be a source of creativity. Culinary teams should have fun with this and use it as like a, what if this were a good idea for our restaurant? What would that look like for for us? Mm-hmm. Well, and let's get granular. So let's talk about the dish of the year, the dessert of the year, the drink of the year. What are these things and how should they influence our menus? I'll take the first couple. I'll turn it over to Candace for drinks because she's the bigger drinker of the two of us. But um, so, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, okay, but yes. So, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple things that when you go, you know, it's just quickly look back when we introduced plant based a few years ago, plant based, or there was always that one dish on the menu, and it was always a collection of the vegetables from the other entrees that just gone to a plate, and that was our vegetarian plant-based and then vegan came and all that. So we saw that early on and now that's become cultural, right? So that's what happens when a trend flips. We were talking about this with sustainability. People said, oh, it didn't really make your report this year. And I was like, that's because it's part of the way people operate now at whatever level they can do it. So when we looked at the dish of the year, we run a few items by and it was mayatake mushrooms. And even last night I was someplace where they served me a, a mushroom ceviche that was made with maitakis. And so I think we all love this because it's got the ridges and it can be fried or roasted or grilled and it takes on a little bit of a meteor quality. So, and looking at all the menus and the trends, we saw that as the dish of the year, for sure. On the cuisine of the year, we loved Filipino. We had called that a few years back as a rising cuisine. And I will say this, the influence of Asian culture on the report this year was incredible. People said, oh, there's no Italian or there's no French. And I was like, they've had hundreds of years to influence how we eat. But Asian culture has definitely been top of mind. And why? Because there's a lot of Asian Americans, families that have immigrated here that have raised American children and that are now presenting their family food or food of their style or, you know, doing it. So Filipino is a great example of that because we saw more restaurants trending on the Bon Appetit lists and on the top restaurant lists. And again, by the way, it scales at all levels too. It can be very fast casual to fine dining. And we've never really seen that in the Filipino world before. So that's why that one got it. Dessert of the year was Baked Alaska. Again, going off of this sort of everything old is new again, we just started to see this popping up on menus. Vault Steakhouse in San Francisco has a Baked Alaska with peach ice cream and fresh peaches. Cajun Toner in New York. There's a restaurant here in Cincinnati that that's one of their you know three signature desserts. And when you think about it, it's fun. It's got a little bit of flair to it. And it can be prepped in advance. I think that's another piece of some of these trends you're seeing you know, related to kind of the way that these things come together as well. Interestingly enough about Baked Alaska, I was doing another interview earlier in the week and and there was this huge debate on, should you mess around with Baked Alaska? (laughs) Was it not good enough as it was? (laughs) 
Right. How do you mess with it in a way that would make it more decadent than it already is? You sprinkle diabetes on top? Like, what do you do? You know, and we got into this debate because they, they were reading our report and they're like, what the hell is Peach doing in a bit? You know, like, I mean, it was like that. And we had this sort of interesting debate. And now, granted, they were an older couple that, you know, to have a radio show. And so this whole debate got into don't mess around with nostalgic dishes. <laughs> but anyway, back to you, Candace. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a valid point, right? The espresso martini was the drink of last year yeah. and everyone's sure. messing with the espresso martini. And I think it's fun. But the drink of the year for this year is this new seafood cocktail, we're calling it. In the 80s and 90s, we saw kind of these sweet cocktails. Bitter became big. And now we're seeing briny being back in style. And it's not just dirty martinis, but we call them coastal cocktails that have sort of oceanic flavors. And then a lot of times there's a really show-stopping garnish of some sort. There's uh, So we're seeing, you know, Blue Stem Restaurant Market in San Francisco has a Chiapino cocktail that is salted tomato water, tequila, clam juice. There's just a number of restaurants playing around with these briny flavors, which is fun to see. Every year, there's always a couple of vegetables or a couple of ingredients that make the list and avocado cocktails and ube was everything should be purple in your <laughs> restaurant. But when you really think about that, why does all of a sudden an ingredient like ube take off? And part of it is not only because it's delicious, but it looks beautiful. Right. And so for all those Instagrammers and a lot of food is being now made for also the presentation of these dishes. Now they're getting yeah. shared across the world. So the prettier they are and ube, it works in cocktails. It worked in so many ways that last year it was butterfly yeah. pea flower. I think it's, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. the blue. Mm -hmm. It always seems to be a colorful ingredient. And I even think avocado made the list in certain places because you're seeing vegetables being used in yeah. cocktails now. I think it's fun too that you can see these ingredients that maybe were thought of as being from one particular region that then get used in a lot of different ways too, like on pancakes. If you think about ube as a sweet potato, suddenly you get a whole lot more uses for it. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Oh. Do you have any advice, words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I would say hire a great marketing <laughs> and PR firm. That would be the number one piece of advice I'd offer up. But I would say, though, if times are challenged, the last thing you should really be cutting is what the top line. I always feel like a lot of the operators manage to the bottom line. And I think that reverse thinking of if we have more top line revenue, we'll be able to do more with it than just cut, 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 cut. And then that starts to impact service. That starts to impact everything. So I would love to say if we could just get the mindset of focusing on the top line as a goal. Now, listen, I know people have to control costs. Don't get me wrong. But I think there should always be an orientation to like, what could we be doing to bring in more revenue? whether it's introducing a new meal period or opening on a different day or doing a product line or whatever it is, I think there should always be a focus of what should we be doing to bring in more revenue. That would be one point of encouragement. The other thing that I would say is that as an industry, because we've been part of this, we were a marketing agency that when all the, our clients went down, we went down with them. And so I would say that we should celebrate the resilience that we have. And I always feel like that Destiny's Child song, I'm a survivor, <laughs> do, do, should always be playing. When any restaurateur walks into a room, that song should be going <laughs> off, right? Because we didn't bake bread. We didn't learn a new language. We were just like, oh my God, what are we going to do, right? And I think celebrating that resilience and then taking your key learning lessons from the last three years and saying like, where am I going with all the fact that I survived? So just looking at all that and 
giving yourselves a pat on the back occasionally because it's been rough. Anyway, I'll turn it over to Candace. Yeah, boy, I don't know if I can top that. I don't have a song. <laughs> but with any hospitality venture, you're taking care of people. And there is something about the people that love this industry that enjoy taking care of people. And that are the people in the room who are happy when other people are having fun. And I think that that is something to celebrate. And I think that's something that when we think about how does our industry grow and how do we repair and how do we really move on from here? I think that's the piece that we have to get back to and make sure that we're building on that and building on that as it relates to all of the stakeholders in the industry and that we're educating consumers about why that matters and educating our guests. These are the things that we as an industry are doing and that you have to understand. I think we've all been through, we've all had conversations with somebody now that things are back to the normal for a lot of the world. We've all had conversations about, oh, restaurants must be doing so well right now. And you're like, you have no idea what's happening in restaurants right now. And we're not doing great right now. And so are we better than when we were shut down? Yeah, but that's not, you know, is that our standard? And so I think we have to really educate the people around us as to kind of what it takes to create these great hospitality experiences. Because to Andrew's point about raising the top line, people have to understand the value and they have to be willing to spend money for it. I always say, if you want a very inexpensive meal, then you have to be really comfortable with the person behind in the kitchen, not having health insurance. And if you want everyone to be equitable, then you have to pay more for your burger. Yeah, I'll just throw in one more thing, because we talked about it. I think definitely focusing on the value proposition of your experience and making sure that people, whatever they're spending with you, feel that they're getting the best value. And also one of the other things that we saw in the report is this experiential element, the need to almost like want in on your process or want in on who's cooking or maybe adding music one night. People have been cooped up, right? So when they go out now, they're looking for, it's more experiential than ever before. They want to be part of, and now listen, some of them just want to eat. So it's not right for everybody. But what I'm saying is there's an opportunity here to bring them into your world or introduce a, a cool partnership with another business that you never might have partnered before. So just look at the experience side of what you do every day. That's the team from Carbonate. For more on the company, visit carbonategroup.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.